Okay, right, we continue our journey this evening. Last week with a little pit stop, and in that pit stop, we reviewed the 16 sessions or the 16 lessons, and this week we will continue with our teaching. If you turn to your Bibles, you will want to join me in Matthew chapter 4. Yesterday I had a meeting with a dear brother and I said, we are going through Matthew, we had 16 sessions. And he looked at me and he said, so how much have you covered? Have you finished 16 chapters already? And I said, no, we just finished chapter 3. And then he looked at me like, whoa, <laughs> how long are you going to take? You know, Jesus might come by then. <laughs> Praise the Lord. This evening, the title is uh, Beta Testing. I don't know if we have any software experts down here. Last week, I was hoping there would be no F1 experts, but turned out that a couple of people knew a little bit about F1. So if you're a software engineer or a software developer, uh, tonight you have to make sure that I'm saying the right things. Okay, but I'm not going to go into great detail of what it is, but you know, if we look at software development, there are actually two terms I believe that uh, they are used to or they are familiar with. One is called alpha testing and the second is called beta testing. Some of us may be more familiar with this term called the beta version, right? But they actually have an alpha testing and the alpha testing is something that they do internally when they develop a product. By the time they test it all internally within their own engineers and within their own platforms, it will be already a fully developed version. Now, once you have that product, that version is put out as a beta version. And that's where the beta testing happens. And that beta testing is really something that's done externally with different people. And it's put out under real-world conditions. That means this is the real thing now. How would this product uh, perform? How would it stand up? to real conditions that are out there. So I looked at these two words, alpha testing and beta testing, and really I want to talk about beta testing, putting things out into the real world to test it, to see how it would perform and stand up in those conditions. But I stumbled on the word alpha also, and interestingly, you know, Jesus is the alpha and the omega, is he not? So Jesus being the alpha... And the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I'm not suggesting in any way that there's something unstable with the system within Jesus. I'm not suggesting that, you know, as an alpha version, that Jesus, uh, that there's something wrong with Jesus. No, okay? I better make this clear right from the front. He is God, right? He was with God. He is God. But the thing is that we know Jesus was sent into humanity. He took on the form of humanity so that he can identify with humanity that he can then represent humanity. And so this question sort of played around in my mind that became our title. How would the Alpha, who's Jesus, fare in the Beta? How would the Alpha fare in a Beta test? Which means, you know, what would happen when... When Jesus, I mean, He's in heaven, you know, He's full of glory, He's full of power, but He divested all these, He comes down to earth and takes on the form of man, frail humanity as we understand, and He's put, as it were, into real earthly, real-time, real-world conditions. 
How would Jesus perform? Can Jesus really understand what we go through? I mean, He is God, you know. I, as a younger Christian, as a younger man, boy, teenager then, you know, I, I used to feel very unfair. Because everyone would say, you know, you must learn from Jesus, you know, do what Jesus did. And I said, that's not fair. He's God. You know, He's the Son of God. How can I look at Him? And, and yet, as I grow and as I understand now, we see Jesus became one of us. Would the Alpha pass a beta test? And we are told in this one, two verses that we will read this evening, as we enter into chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now we know what follows after this, three temptations. But tonight our objectives, we want to study these two verses as an introduction to the temptations of Jesus over the next sessions. And I pray that as we go through this preliminary, it would help us understand better, you know, that when we come back for the next three sessions where we deal with the three temptations in greater detail. We will also want to learn from Jesus, who is our King, as we face similar challenges whilst we want to be on kingdom assignments. Who better to learn from than the king himself? And we will see through this that temptations and tests are very much a part of our walk with God and in this world that we live in. And especially so, I want to remind you, when we're going to be on assignment with and for our king. So I hope that this evening and this lesson would achieve these and would help you understand this passage better. Will you pray with me? Lord, we want to get into Scripture, Lord. And as we do this, we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us, to lead us, and to guide us, Lord. Lord, we don't want to come with presupposition of things that we may know or things that we think we already know. But we ask you to teach us and give us illumination and revelation and give us a fresh understanding, Lord, of who Jesus is as our King and what it means to serve Him in His kingdom. And so be with me, Lord, and be with my friends too as we journey together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So these two verses, we're going to unpack them, take a little portion at a time, and get into some subtopics to understand a bigger one of this beta testing. So firstly, let's look at these first two words. Then Jesus. And this point is really about an after or before, or before and after. When do temptations come? When do tests hit us? When we look at the story and this account of Jesus, we see an after and a before that affected him. You know, we just finished our study of three chapters. The temptations would come to him or attack him in that sense after a grand introduction of who this Messiah is. You remember, Matthew is just introducing who Jesus is. He's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, and this is the one who will save, this is the one who will be with you. He's Emmanuel, he's this, he's that. Grand introduction. John the Baptist comes and then he says, you know, the one that's going to come up, he's greater than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals and so on. And then up comes Jesus and he's identified. He's the one who will take away the sins of this world. Wow, what an introduction. 
He gets into the water. He comes up, spirit baptism. After spirit baptism, the Father declares publicly, announcing His love, His pleasure upon His Son. This is my beloved Son, whom I love. And I'm with Him, I am well pleased. Wow. What a high. What a high. But it didn't just happen after. It happened before something. It happened before Jesus Himself commenced His messianic mission and moved on His kingdom assignment. The temptations came before he was launched into a public ministry, before he registered anything. You know, these temptations hit him one after another. Isn't it also interesting to see that Jesus, at the end of chapter 3, he was there in the Jordan River. Not exactly the beach that we talked about. But nice, refreshing waters. He, he went into the waters, he came out, the, the, the Spirit comes upon him, the Father declares, and he moves suddenly from river to desert. I don't know how your work has been, how your spiritual life has been. I love mountaintop experiences, don't you? I mean, wow, great encounters. But do you realize, or have you realized, that usually, not all the time, but some of the times, after these mountaintop experiences, man, there can come a crash. And it's not that God doesn't love you anymore. It's not that He loves you less. No, it's not that He has disappeared. It's just that you've just had this great encounter. It's a wow thing. But when you return, you are being tested. You are being tested. And so each time... I come out of a high. Like for example, last week we came back from the awakening event. I mean, it was a beautiful time. You know, seeing people touched, uh, being um, trained as archipuses and declaring even, you know, uh, archipuses, awakened, aligned, assigned. Wow. And it's still echoing in my, in my brain. And then when you get home, you're all alone. You preach a great message, you do an altar call, and people all come out, and you're praying, and say, wow, this is, man, God's presence was there. Whoa, you can't sleep that night. The next morning, you wake up, man, low. And then, then, then the temptations come, the words come, the accusations come. You sure? Will he come back? Something we've got to learn from this then. And our faith cannot be based only on feelings. It's dangerous if you are only based on feelings. Your faith has got to be more robust than just camping on high points and nice, great feelings. Because if you're only based on feelings, there's going to be a great danger because when you hit a low, you can't handle it. You won't know how to respond. And if you're always looking for the next high, the next high, the next high, the next high, then it doesn't speak very much also of the kind of walk you have with the Lord. And this explains why God allows us to go through some of these seasons, some of these experiences, the befores and the afters. It happens to all of us. You know, before starting Archipus Awakening and at different junctures of my own journey in the full-time ministry, 
I've gone through many, many transitions. I can tell you before God launches you into a new initiative or doing something new, the temptations and the tests come. The questions come, the doubts come, the anxieties come. I mean, if you want to hear my story, you don't have to talk to me, just talk to my wife. Because she sees me at home, she sees me wrestle. You don't see me in that kind of a situation, right? She, she hears the questions that I ask, and I, I ask her the question over and over and over and again. And I know she doesn't have the answer, but I'm just thankful that, that she's a sounding board for me, that I'm able just to bombard her with that. The doubts that come, are you sure I need to do this? Did I hear God correctly and all that? The tests come with the afters and the befores. And we have to learn from the ministry of Jesus, the person of Jesus, because if anyone got it full-blown, full attack, in the, he got it. What more all of us, amen? So expect it. I don't mean go looking for it. I'm just saying be ready for it. I'm not suggesting everywhere you go, oh, spiritual attack, oh, spiritual attack. Everywhere is spiritual attack. Uh, that is also not healthy, okay? Huh? But if you are prepared and you are ready, if and when it comes, you're not caught off guard. Then Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And in charismatic circles, we love this line, as the Spirit leads. Yeah? Oh, we love this. We use this for everything and anything. Sometimes as an excuse, if we don't want to do things properly. I want to expose a faulty and a dangerous theology first. And this faulty theology says that if God leads you, then everything will be smooth and will be okay. Sounds nice, right? Have you heard it preached like that before sometimes? You have, right? And even if it's not preached like that, we want it to be like that. But it's dangerous. It's faulty. Because if you hold on to this theology that if God leads you, then everything will be okay and smooth. Now, if the reverse happens, when challenges come and you experience a time of dryness, then, man, you are thrown off. Then you think, I I've hurt wrong. I've been disobedient. The whole world crumbles. It's faulty. It's dangerous. Do all you need to do to confirm and to know for sure that the Lord is leading you, that the Spirit is directing you. Whatever He says to you, I've said to so many people, write it down, journal it down. Because when the going gets tough, you've got to hold on to the Word of God and what He said to you. Because that's all you have to go by. Now, you know why I published a book called Save Our Keepers? Because when I get shaky, I read that book now. And I try to remind myself what God has said to me. And if God really did say to me, I believe an anointing will still be upon the words that have been journaled. See, sometimes God leads us into places we don't really want to go. I mean, look at Paul. The Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem and there he's going to get arrested. And the church was telling him, don't go, please. 
That's dangerous. Live another day so you can preach another sermon. And Paul says, no, please. The Spirit is leading me because this is part of my assignment. I need to go. Will we follow and will we obey even if it's something we do not like? I know people who will keep praying and keep, keep getting confirmation until they get an answer that they like. Then they say, as the Spirit leads, thus says the Lord. Right? And so they go for meetings after meeting, pro- pro- prophecy after prophecy, and lay hands after lay hands until they find one word that is right, and then they say, oh, that's it. And they ignore all the others. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? You know, in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, the same, past, the, the, the same account It says, Jesus, immediately after the baptism, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Wow. Not just lead him. Drove him, pushed him right down there. So, did Jesus follow or was Jesus nudged strongly? To be led by the Spirit really means that whatever He says to us, we must go. We must do. It's obedience. Now, this is different from suffering the consequences of our bad decisions and our own folly, okay? But even so, this is how great our God is. That when we make a mistake and find ourselves in a difficult position, if we would realize, acknowledge our mistake and turn back and realign with the Lord, His grace is there for us. In His sovereignty, He can redeem that situation into His leading for you. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah? And so whatever the reason, learn quickly and make full use of the time that is there. Now we know that Jesus saves and Jesus stays. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not lead and then leave. The Spirit of Christ will do exactly the same thing that if He leads you, He will be there for you. Because that's a promise of Emmanuel, that He will be with us and He will never forsake us. And especially so, if He's taking, through, taking you through a difficult time, He will definitely want to be there because He knows you need Him for sustenance as well as for strength. So when you find yourself in a time you know, of challenge, of difficulty, of anxiety, of doubt, the Spirit may want be, be, be just reminding you, get strong in the Spirit. Stop looking at the things through a fleshly lens. Don't rely on the physical and the material because that's not going to get you through that season. So when the Spirit leads you in that regard, it usually involves also times of fasting. And once you begin to deny the flesh, the Spirit becomes sensitive then you can hear more clearly. The spirit man becomes strengthened because you're no longer relying on the coffee, caffeine, sugar highs that keep you through each day. I see guilty faces all around. But when you go through a time like that, you need the strength of the Holy Spirit. Your spirit man must be alive. And so there'll be times of fasting. And I'll just leave you this section with this one verse. When I read this a couple of years ago, or quite a few years ago now, Romans 8 verse 14, it really hit me. 
It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Look at that phrasing. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God. Now, isn't it interesting? When we believe in Jesus, we have been adopted into the Father's family. We are all sons and daughters. Amen? And yet, Paul makes this distinction. For as many as are led by the Spirit, not just accept Jesus Christ only, you know. I mean, yes, we have that privilege. We are in that position. But God is wanting to raise matured sons and daughters. And it's those who are led by the Spirit, who can hear and identify the voice of the Father as well as the voice of Jesus the Master, these are led by the Spirit. These are true sons and true daughters of God. How do we practice that? Sometimes God will need to allow that situation for us to learn that. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, where? Into the wilderness. Now we've got to learn this fast. God has many ways to lead us. His ways are higher than our ways, but one of His ways is the way of the wilderness. You cannot say, so, uh, believe, uh, I don't want, cannot. I, this, is, this is God. And He leads us by the way of the wilderness. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that's the people of Israel, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God is gracious. He doesn't give you wars immediately, right? In verse 18, So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. See, God has a way of leading us into a time of, of seeming dryness. You know, the wilderness is a place of, of dryness, sparseness, nothingness that is there. And when you find yourself in the wilderness, it's also a time of aloneness. Is that danger? Yes. We are told that Jesus, when He was there, He, he actually had to face the the danger of wild beasts. Funny things that creep around at night in the wilderness can sting you, can kill you, and there are dangers out there. So God leads the children of Israel by the way of the wilderness. And if you see Deuteronomy 8, when Moses recalls and recounts that experience of 40 years, you begin to see the reasons why God brings them through the wilderness. And I've given you just keywords down here because this would take too long to unpack for you. The wilderness is a place of, of wandering. And you can spell that with an A or an O, that's fine. It's a place of wandering and it's a place of wandering. Yeah. Have you been there? Yeah, the times in our lives is like, God, where am I? What's happening? Who am I? Who are you? Are you here? You know, it's really wandering and wandering. It's that time. And God says, look, I'm bringing, that, bringing you into that for a simple reason. It's to humble you. Don't think you know so much. When I strip everything from you, let's see how much you know. Before that, oh, I can talk a lot. After that, uh, humble. There is the Word. God gave the Word. God gave the law. 
uh, the next time when we come back, we talk about temptation. Jesus says, you will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's also a time of waiting. As you're wondering, you don't really know what to do. It's about waiting. It's about watching. God told the people of Israel, you watch that cloud. When a cloud comes down, you set up tent and you set up camp. When a cloud lifts, you break camp and you move. And I'm not going to tell you when. So it's a training of learning how to wait upon God. Is it not true that if we are all, when we are all in the marketplace in our daily routine, God is the one waiting for us. But when He gets you to a place of wilderness, you've got no choice. You wait for Him. And you learn how to watch. At the right time, it's also a place of wars. There will be battles to be fought in the wilderness. And Israel faced a couple of battles and God came through for them if they would only learn how to continue to rely on Him. It would also be a place of wonders. There are miracles, right? How did the manna come? It was a place of provision. It was a place of protection. How did they walk right through 40 years and they use one pair of shoes? The ladies will be really upset about this. The wilderness was also a place that God taught them who would be central in their worship. Whenever they set up camp, where was the tabernacle? Right in the center. And the tribes will be all laid out all around it. All of life, all of community revolved around whom? God. Nothing to distract them. It was the wilderness, you see. So Jesus was led up there. Do you think you can escape the wilderness? <laughs> so if you find yourself in a time of wilderness, you're in a good place. You're in a good place. Don't rush through. Allow God to deal with you and to have His way and to train you. Because in the wilderness, finally, if you learn, it will really reveal who or what we truly believe in and what we rely or who we rely on. You know, we share with people about trying to discover assignments and knowing assignments, and we say that there are no shortcuts. Some of us, you know, we are faithful in the small things, and after 20 years, we begin to see the picture, or 25 years, it becomes clearer. It's not that God cannot give it to us much earlier, but if He gives it to us, we don't have the maturity to handle it at that time. And we go through our seasons of wilderness, our transitions, our battling, our wrestling with God, our waiting and our watching, you know, and, and God just brings us to a point where we realize, God, it's you. We trust you. We rely on you. And then you're ready. See that? And so Jesus, really, in the past message I've been telling you, right, Jesus represented the new Israel. He is the second Israel. So just as Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus would spend 40 days to represent that experience of Israel. Now, in software language, Jesus will be Israel 2.0. And that's why Israel 2.0 needs to go through a beta test to see, does he really understand what the people went through? 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. He's there to be tempted. There's a specific reason for him being in the wilderness. And here, when we look at temptations, normal understanding would be uh, it's something we want, we shouldn't have it, uh, or it's something that we want to do, but we shouldn't do it, you know, that kind of temptations. But I want to give you these three words that are really interchangeable. In English, it's a little bit different, but it sort of refers to about the same thing. A temptation happens to be also a time of a trial, because in a time of a trial, you do have a temptation. And in a time of a trial, you also find a test, right? A trial really is a test. So it can be temptation, it can be a trial, it can be a test. But there are two Greek words that are used, and one is called perazo, the other one is called dokimazo. I know it sounds Japanese, but don't go sushi on me now. The word to tempt is from this word called perazo. But there's another word called to test or to prove that the Bible uses. It's called dokimazo. What's the difference? Perazo is to test with a view towards destruction. In other words, when I use this word and I want to test something, let's say I want to test this chair. If I perazo it, I will test it to show up its weak points. You understand? I want to test it and to find fault and so that if I find those faults, I can reject it. If I don't, of course, then I won't. But dogimazo is to test with a view of strengthening for the purpose of determining genuineness, usually by fire. So if I dogimazo this chair now, I would test it for its good stuff. It's good things so that I can approve it. And along the way, if I find things that are not so good, I will address it so that I can improve it. You see the difference here? So there's a temptation, which is perazo, and there's a test, which I use this word, dokimazo, to illustrate. Now, why is this important for us? Because when you come into a time of decision, when you come into a time of trial, or of a, situ a certain situation, it may not necessarily be bad. It may be a very attractive proposition to you. We call that a trial, but in every trial, there is like, if you look at it as like a coin, there are two sides to a coin. When you come to a point of decision, one side of the coin is a temptation. The other side of the coin is a test. Think about this. When you are facing a situation and you have a decision to make, the temptation would be to do it your way. Don't care about God. Lah. Doesn't matter. Lah. He understands. You see that? But the test would be to do it God's way. To fast, to pray, to wait on Him. Maybe even to reject this. Can you see this? And so both are tests. One is a temptation to go it your way. Another is a test to do it God's way. What does the enemy want to do with you? He wants to tempt you. So whenever he brings something to you or gives you um, reason to do or not to do, and if you bite on that, immediately, what does the tempter say? You see, you fail. You're not good enough. You're not spiritual enough. You're weak. I thought you said you're Christian. 
that temptation is to test you to show up the flaws. That's what he will focus on. But if you will take the test and pass it, and although not perfectly, the Heavenly Father looks at you and says, well done. You didn't do too well, but my grace is sufficient for you. Keep going on. You see, you see the difference here? And so in every trial, there is a temptation and there is a test. You decide which one you want to take. The enemy will tempt, but God will test. And it's biblical and we are correct because in James chapter 1, it says, when anyone is tempted, let him not say that God tempts because, or God tempted him because God can, does not tempt anyone. So we know God will not tempt to pull you down. But God will allow that temptation so that on the flip side is a test to pull you up. See how gracious and how great our God is? And Jesus had to go through the same thing as the Son of God. He would be tempted, but in that, the Father allows it. In fact, the Father set him up by the Holy Spirit, brought him to the exam hall of the wilderness and left him there with the Holy Spirit, of course. And after that, we know Jesus would pass with flying colors, right? So as you look at this, we see Jesus as the second Adam, Adam 2.0. Where Adam and Eve, when they were tempted in the garden, in the abundance of the garden, they failed. But Jesus passed and He was tempted, tested in the barrenness of the wilderness. If you study and you read commentaries, you have heard messages about this. The temptations are really not very different for all of us. They are usually categorized into these three things, the things of the world. It's called the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So look at how Eve was tempted, right? The lust of the flesh. She saw it was good for food. So I suppose she, in her, her flesh desired to, to taste of that. It was the last of the eyes. She saw it was beautiful. It was nice. It was on sale. And so she bit the bait. It was the pride of life. The serpent told her, if you take this, you can be like God. You don't have to answer to anyone anymore. You, know, it, you are God. You, you will be your own person. If you would stop to think all of our temptations would fall into these three categories. It's the same strategy by the enemy. He, he does not change. It's the same. Speaking of the enemy, I think we have to know who this guy is. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You've got to know your enemy. So far, we've only met his agents in chapter 1, 2, and 3. Through people who are weak, insecure, you know, fallen, all of us. His agents are like Herod's religious leaders. But now we are first introduced to the main guy, the big man here. Jesus actually refers to him. And the truth is, he's real. And he's sneaky. He's both real and sneaky. And he appears really cute and adorable, doesn't he? 
Because he knows, see, if he, if he comes out and he's a little bit too scary, we will run away. So Christians sometimes look at characters like this, cartoon characters of the, of the devil, and they accept him. It's okay. Not very threatening. Look at that little pitchfork. Very small. We will not hurt any one of us. But someone said this, the devil doesn't come dressed in the red cape and pointy horns. Otherwise, you'll recognize him, right? He comes as everything you've ever wished for. That latest car. That, that house with one extra room would be just nice for you. The latest fashion. You see this? He, he doesn't come dressed and, you know, standing in front of you with his cape, no. But he tempts us through all these things. And especially, uh, especially today, this is what he is good in doing. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. So you talk to your friends, right? So, oh, no, 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 there's hell, there's devil. He said, no, la, you, you're too superstitious. I'm not the religious sort, you know. I don't believe in all these things. He doesn't want us to think he's real. He wants us to treat him casually. But he is real. And he is sneaky. So let's see how Jesus describes him. In this one chapter, Jesus uses three words to address him. First, the devil, which is translated from this word, diabolos. You know the English word, diabolic? Comes from this, diabolos. And it literally means accuser, slanderer. He has a way with words. The devil is an accuser and a slanderer. How does he do it? Obviously with words. He is a twister of words. And he will use these words either to pull you down or to prop you up. Both ways. He will use it to tear you down, to accuse you, to slander you, or he can use it also to flatter you. Either way, whichever works best for him, and whichever works worse for you. So your temptations that come would come through words. Is it not true? In the next weeks, we will find, as you read your scripture, Satan tempts Jesus with what? The Word of God. He uses scripture. So guys, if you don't know your scripture, you're on dangerous ground. You're on dangerous ground. So if you're quoting scripture out of context, if you are happy only having an impression of, I think, I think the Bible says something like that, you must be careful, okay? The second word which we've already uh, explored is perazon, which just translates into tempter. And we know this, right? He tests us with a view and an agenda to fail us. He wants to fail you. He wants to discredit and disqualify you. That's what he does. And so he will throw things your way, and after you do it, he will come to you and say, you see, you're not a very good Christian. You see, you, did, you missed Kingdom 101 last week. You see, you forgot what was preached already by lunchtime. 
You see? You agree, right? Yes, yes, amen. And then now, you scolded someone. And he tears you down. Then you, you, you believe him. I'm not good enough. I'm lousy. I'm weak. There are other people better than me. The third is Satan, or from this word, Satanas, which is really a transliteration of a Hebrew. Literally, Satan means an enemy or an adversary, an opposer. So what does he do as an opposer? He wants to block you. He wants to oppose you. He wants to distract you. From what? Obviously, the things of God. But for Jesus, who was moving towards his messianic mission, this guy comes to oppose him, to stand away, to discredit him, to try to pull him down so that he will not get onto his mission. It's the same with us. First, he tells you, you don't have an assignment. You are not good enough. You are too small, too insignificant. Then you go for this funny ministry called Akipas Awakening. Then you realize, man, I'm Akipas. I have an assignment. I'm going to get on to the assignment of God. What's he going to do? He's going to distract you now. He's going to block you. He's going to oppose you. He's going to stand in the way. You've got to know your enemy. Of course, we can spend time talking about this on the wonderful weapons that you have that you have already beaten him. Amen? Yeah? But that's not for this message. So one verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we have to ask ourselves, how did the Alpha fare in the Beta? Because if the Alpha failed in the Beta, there will be no Omega. But today he is Alpha and Omega because, man, he passed the Beta with flying colors. So Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16 records for us. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was tempted as we are at all points, and yet found without sin. That qualifies him. That keeps him totally qualified to be that high priest, to enter into the Holy of Holies, to be that perfect sacrifice, to open the way into the presence of the Father. And when we believe in His work, we get that privilege. And this is the privilege that we have. That's wonderful. Not because we are perfect, but we are perfect in Him. And because of that, we get to go in to get help in time of need. Now, how did Jesus pass the test? Now, just let me give you some suggestions here. Number one, I'm biased, I know, but I make no apologies. Jesus knew his assignment. And everyone said, Amen. True? He comes to do the Father's will. So he knew his assignment. That kept him clear. Is it not true? When we do not have a focus, we will veer, we, we will cut corners. We will take as many pit stops as we want and we will make all the excuses and come up with spiritual reasons why it's okay. But Jesus knew his assignment. Obviously, 
he aligned with his father's will. Not only that, the father's word, and once the father gives that word, it would determine the father's ways. And he lived that way. So each time the enemy presented an option using scripture, Jesus would align back with the Father's will, with His word, with His ways, and rebuts the tempter. Jesus was anointed and alert in the Spirit. Now that's something we've got to pay careful attention to because we may not be moving at that level. But I believe we all can move at a slightly higher level from wherever we are. We need the Kingdom Immersion Program, remember? We need more of the Holy Spirit. We have to stay sensitive in the Spirit. Jesus did not succumb to fleshly desires. He was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. Some of us, after 40 minutes, we need the next meal. The fleshly desire is not just his stomach, but you know, his eyes, whatever he would see. He, he did not succumb to that. Why? Spiritually, he was above that, you see. I'm saying it's tough sometimes for us because it's not natural for us to stop eating. And yet, if we are serious about being on assignment with the Lord, depending on the magnitude and the scale of that, you know, I think we need to prepare and posture appropriately. I know the Lord has led me through times and seasons of fasting. But I tell you, the most, the craziest one for me, really, was for our Keeper's Awakening. Why? Because all bets were on this, whether I heard it correctly or not. You know, I had given up a pastoral position, left a school of ministry, you know. It's like, God, you better come true. I better hear you. This better be right. And I said, Lord, then I'm, I'm going to posture. I'm not saying that I'm going to work harder so that I'll be more favoured by you. That's not the point. But I'm going to posture. If I'm not hearing something correctly, I need to posture. And crazily, I went on a 10-day fast, full fast. Just water. Man, I struggled. <laughs> really, it was tough. And crazily, Serene went on a 10-day fast with me. So we both struggled. And we had different challenges at different points, you know, but at least there was a, someone running the race and training with you. you know. And some days you step in the shower, you know, shower, you can't even, you can't even wash your hair. But you became sharp. You read the Word of God and things come out. Jesus did not abuse His position and power. I'm going to spend more time on that in the next messages. But you realize something? Here was the Son of God. He had everything at His disposal. And the enemy knew it. He said, just say it, just do it, and things will just come to pass. And Jesus knew he could have done it. Otherwise, it was a, a false thing, a, a test. And yet, he did not do it. It really makes me think today where we are going all over the place trying to cast things out and pray for people and you know, invoke the name of Jesus and everything. The question is, did the Father ask us to do it? We'll get more deeply into this, right? And it's going to blow our minds. It's going to challenge the way we, we use the name of Jesus sometimes today. He did not have to prove anything to the devil. 
He knew who he was. And sometimes we think, oh man, you know, if I could raise the dead, the devil will leave me alone. If, if I can have more of this, if I can do this, if I, if I can preach it this way, I've got to prove, there's nothing to prove. Jesus is enough. He did not allow the devil to distract him one bit. He knew, you see, he was focused. So we asked, did the tempter give up after three? Strike one, strike two, strike three. You're out. Luke chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So were there other times? Perhaps. I believe so. At every point, would he try to distract Jesus from his main assignment, the cross? I believe so. All the way through to the Garden of Gethsemane. Amen. Our Savior and our Master and our King was tempted at all points as we are. But he overcame and is victorious. So what does this mean for us as we bring this to a personal understanding and application? See, the alpha testing, which is internal, uh, let me put it this way. It's easy to hide behind churchy talk and doctrines. Right? This is training at home. And we think everything is okay. We attend Bible study and it's good. Uh, we, we score A+, A star. We quote, we have debate over lunch, over coffee. That's nice. You know your stuff. That's good. And that's the alpha test. We know who we are in Christ. We can, we can state all these kind of things. But externally, how do we fare when taken and sent out? Tested under real world conditions. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand sometimes in church, it's also real world. Huh? In fact, sometimes internally in church, enough already. We seek solace in the real world. But you understand what I'm trying to say. That we can be churchy people, we can do churchy things, we can have all doctrines pet now nicely, and it's fine. But when we get out there into our areas of operation, how do we fare? See, I shared with you just now, temptations and tests are very much a part of our walk with God and in this world that we live in. And especially so when we're going to be on assignment with and for Jesus. For us, we can rest in this assurance that Jesus has already defeated the enemy and He has also shown us how to overcome these temptations. How to overcome these distractions or things that come against us. And for Him, it was clear He served the Father's will. That was the focus. He was on a mission. Are we on that same mission? Do we have that same focus? Because the enemy would throw things along the way to take you away from this mission and from this assignment. Jesus refused to be distracted or to be de-aligned. Will we do the same thing? Would we determine to realign and realign and if we have to, to realign again? That's what it is. I'm not saying we never veer. We have our weaknesses and we fall short at times. But we know that in that test, the Father is saying, you've done well, son. You missed this part. My grace is sufficient. Let's go back in. Let's press on. 
Jesus relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. When was the last time we trained the Spirit man? And of course, Jesus stayed true to his assignment. He had many, many sub-assignments. But he stayed true to each and every one of them. See, when we get out, we know that there are times we will feel weak. We feel helpless against such temptations. But you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it's a beautiful verse that's quoted and used out of context many times. It says that all temptations, they are not uncommon. I'm paraphrasing for you. It's the same. All of us go through this. But he says, our God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Tested what we can bear. It doesn't talk about a difficult situation of what you can bear in that situation. It's the temptation, not the situation. That He will provide a way of escape that you may bear through it, through that test. And so every time you come into a situation of decision, you have a decision to make. Not about that, what to do, but how would you approach that? Would you yield to a temptation or would you pass a test? Would you allow the enemy to distract you and derail you or will you say, no, I'll rely on the faithfulness of God who will take me through this. I may not do it totally well, but as I do this to the glory of God, He will guide me and He will take me through this. So as we conclude, let's end with an Old Testament story. This story is about David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. See, David, as we know, with Bathsheba, David should have been on assignment. It was a time where kings went out to war. That's his assignment. He's a king. He should be leading people. But because he was not on an assignment, he ended up being tempted. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. I'm king, I can do anything. On the contrary, the one that was affected without even knowing, this guy called Uriah, one of his soldiers, Uriah knew his assignment and he refused to be tempted and he didn't want to compromise his assignment. David called him back from battle and said, Uriah, I tell you what, I give you a day off. Go home, go be your wife. Yeah, you fought a hard battle. I mean, come on, go enjoy yourself. Uriah refused to compromise his assignment. He knew his heart was still on assignment. He was still serving the king and the kingdom. He had fellow soldiers out there fighting. Was he tempted? I bet you he was tempted. He was a full-blooded man. Battle won. You think he won't want to go home and be with his wife? But he was on Assignment. Small lesson here. People who are not on assignment try to distract people who are on assignment. <laughs> Jesus was Israel 2.0. Jesus is Adam 2.0. Jesus as the Messiah is also David 2.0. And this David in Jesus completed his assignment. And he's cheering us on to fulfill ours. He's the king that we're serving. It is his kingdom that we are part of. Can I encourage you? Let's serve him with our whole heart.
and determined not to be distracted by the enemy or by anyone else. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for Jesus, Lord. What an example, Lord, our King, our Master, our Saviour, our Lord. And Lord, He has overcome the enemy. He has done it all, Lord. He fulfilled His assignment. That is why we have a place here, Lord, this evening. And not only that, Lord, we get to serve Him. We get to serve His kingdom. We get to be on assignment. But Lord, help us. You know our weaknesses. You know the struggles that we face. Lord, we desire to know and to fulfill our assignment, but Lord, we need You. We cannot do it apart from You. We need Your Holy Spirit, Lord. We need one another to be on assignment. And so I ask You, Lord, enable us. Enable us. Protect us. Fight the battle even, Lord, for us. Because the enemy comes against us, Lord. He wants to discourage us, accuse us, condemn us, distract us, flatter us, inflate us. Lord, grant us sensitivity in our spirits, Lord, to recognize His voice as we would also recognize Yours. And so, Lord, teach us even through next weeks as we learn more about Jesus and how to overcome, Lord, in Him and through Him, not by our own strength, Lord, but by what He has already done for us. And we thank You, Lord. We bless You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.